Greetings, dear listeners. We have a treat for you this week. Our friend Glenn Greenwald stopped by the pod to chat with us about the Ukraine war. All three of us come at this from very different perspectives, so as you can imagine, the conversation went in a lot of interesting directions. As we usually do, the podcast is split in two parts, with the second part for paying subscribers only. Head on over to wisdomofcrowds.live slash subscribe to become a paying member and get access to all the extra content. And if you like what you're hearing, don't forget to leave us a review on your favorite podcast app. Hope you enjoy. This was a good one. Well, Glenn, welcome. I'm excited about this episode because we're doing something we haven't quite done before. I mean, it's part of the wisdom of crowds ethos that we encourage disagreement and we don't try to paper over those disagreements. But I think this might actually be the first time where we're discussing something where our guest might be on the quote unquote opposite side. I'm not sure if that's fair to say. We'll find out. But um, I'm excited to kind of dive into these issues. Obviously, we're going to be talking about uh, Russia and Ukraine and how we as Americans should be responding to it. Um, So maybe just to start, so we're all on the same page. We're two weeks into the invasion. A lot has already happened, obviously. What would you say you're most worried about at this very moment? I mean, what is keeping you up? And obviously, we'll include some of your recent pieces on Substack in the show notes, so readers will have an idea about what you've been arguing. But maybe just what what's consuming you right now? Yeah, well, first of all, it's great to be back on the show. I'm, I'm glad you guys invited me, particularly since, as you said, we definitely have differing perspectives, uh, to say the least, on... on the war itself, although not necessarily every component of it. And I think asking that question, what is concerning me, is a good way to isolate what those differences are. Obviously, when you look at a war that involves one country invading another, bombing it, shelling it, you know, flattening buildings and neighborhoods, it's horrific to watch. And nobody, I think, that's a decent person would say, They're happy to see Russia do it. They think it's justified for Russia to invade or anything like that. We can all kind of agree that the war is horrific um, and, and devastating to watch, you know, emotionally, morally, and in every other way. But for me, that just doesn't get us very far any more than it got us very far to say the 9-11 attack was a moral atrocity. It was, but a lot of people who joined in with that correct moral evaluation nonetheless ended up endorsing a variety of false claims and a variety of misguided policies in response. And that's the first thing that is my pre- primary concern is what is the role of my own government? What is the role of my own country in this war going to be? And what has it been thus far? I am relieved that Joe Biden and other Western leaders like Boris Johnson and NATO allies seem continuously steady on their insistence that, say, a no-fly zone or anything that would put American troops directly in military confrontation with the Russians is ill-advised and not even something that's on the table. I nonetheless worry that the U.S. is already so heavily involved in Ukraine and has been for so many years and that the emotions around this war are building so rapidly that clearly there's a lot more pressure than there was two weeks ago on on the U.S. government to do more. And I'm concerned about what that might be. That's the first thing. The second thing is, you know, there's there's, there's this kind of like prohibition on putting this war into context, by which I mean asking why it happened, who was at fault for bringing about the conditions where it took place, um, whether or not we can focus on similar acts that our own government have done. All of this is prohibited. We're only allowed to say it's Putin's fault. Russia's to blame. This war is hideous and and morally atrocious. And that's it. And the concern that I have about that kind of discourse is I do think it creates this kind of revitalized faith in American militarism, American power, which um, – 
you know, Shadi, you wrote, I think, a, a very eloquent case for in, in The Atlantic. I've seen other people like Ian Bremmer saying the same thing, that this war is kind of like going to have the opposite effect of the Iraq war, which brought a lot of skepticism about American power, American intelligence community, American claims. This is almost like the opposite, like convincing everybody, no, this time we're on the right side. This shows why American militarism is, is for the good, why it's so needed. And I'm worried about the long-term enduring effects of how people are reacting. In, in terms of the context of how we got here, uh, so on the question of who's at fault, what would you say to that, just so we're, we're clear on that? Well, I, you know, like who's at fault? I mean, you know, it's. I guess I could use the uh, September 11th uh, analogy to, to talk about this. You know, you can say what Al-Qaeda did on September 11th is inexcusable and immoral and nothing justifies it. And that is my view. I nonetheless believed and still believe that it's important to look at what their grievances were, what actually motivated people to fly planes into buildings and to look at the policies that we had engaged in prior to that that created so much animus and hatred and perception of threat in that part of the world, things that they said, like placing our military on Saudi soil, the sanctions regime that killed 500,000 Iraqis, our kind of unflinching support for Israel, no matter how abusive they are toward Palestinian rights, this constant interference in that part of the world, propping up dictators, removing democratically elected leaders. It's important to understand that that set the conditions that created this climate where hatred levels were so high that people would want to come and, and do that to our shores so that we can understand our enemy, but also to prevent this kind of, you know, continuous provocation on our part of, of increasing anti-American sentiment to that level. I think the same thing you can say is here. There's nothing that justifies an invasion of Ukraine the way that Russia did it, but it's still worth asking whether... American and NATO expansion up to the Russian border and then kind of insinuating that Ukraine, the most sensitive area of the Russian border, could actually become part of that NATO expansion, something that for 20 years, not Noam Chomsky only, but U.S. officials, very mainstream ones, including the current director of the CIA, said would be highly provocative, not just to Putin, but to any Russian leader. Constant interference in Ukraine since 2014, at least, we played some role in the change of government, no one can doubt that. The Ukrainians did too, but we were there helping push it and financing it and engineering it. And then since 2014, lots of American involvement right on the Russian border in ways that if they were doing it to us in Mexico or Canada or Cuba or Venezuela, we would obviously find very threatening. And I think it's worth asking that not to suggest Russians were justified, but to understand what role we've been playing in increasing the tensions that caused Russia to feel threatened and encircled and have their national security at risk. So, Glenn, you know, I, I, uh, I'll tell you, and we can get into this at length. Um, I, I share a lot of that, that, that criticism. And I, I've, I've, you know, warned about myself and my own writing and, you know, research and stuff that we published in various places. I've always looked for pieces that have warned about us getting into this situation. Um, and I, I, you know, I, I think it's, it's I, even in my last piece, you know, I mean, it's, I, I had a arguing against the no-fly zone, incidentally, um, here on Wisdom of Crowds. I, I, I pointed to the fact that, uh, you know, in fact, uh, insofar as we uh, led the Ukrainians, and I didn't say, perhaps I should have, and the Russians to believe that we had... Uh, a security commitment or a commitment to their territorial integrity that was uh, going to hold. Uh, we we do have blood on our hands on in that in that regard because you know I, I think the way we got here was a lot of sort of wishful thinking on the part of parts of government. Um, you know Ukrainians themselves. I mean the whole story of NATO enlargement uh, is often told. I think from the American perspective and the the kind of um, policy activists that really wanted this. But, you know, the, the other history is, is a lot of these countries really wanted it. Most for of the sure. countries that came out, they were asking for it. And so part of the, the, the you know, the, the tragedy of all this is that, uh, uh, you know, Ukraine and Georgia felt, in fact, incredibly threatened and worried about this sort of stuff. Yes, you know, we did do democracy promotion. We were doing that. That's something that America does. It's, it's part of its DNA. 
And so we were leading up to this point. It's important, though, that, of course, we didn't extend those guarantees to Georgia and Ukraine. And, uh, you know, while the NATO expansion argument goes back and forth, I, I think that's important for, for readers to understand that, you know, it's certainly been a tussle, uh, listeners to understand that it's certainly it's been a tussle within, uh, you know, U.S. policy circles about whether or not to. And I think we've ended up on a particularly um, nasty place as a result of this. And I think it's terrible. Uh, but, uh, you know, something I note sometimes in your writing, and I, I, I sort of push you on that, from my perspective, this, the horror of this is that we walked into this. We, you know, I sometimes get a sense when you write about it that, that you know, you're saying that, that almost, you know, that the United States caused it, taking everything I just said, you know, I mean, I'm not saying we're not responsible, but that there was a plan of some sort and that this war then, you know, emanates from this kind of, you know, American drive, uh, almost, you know, that it's willed, rather than, you know, uh, this to me has been like a, a slow-moving car wreck, and, you know, it finally, you know, the, the, the cars have collided, and there's blood everywhere. And, uh, you know, I, I, I feel, I, from my perspective, it's, that doesn't, that doesn't absolve anything and policy mistakes in getting here, but it's not, it's not quite I, – I always feel like when I'm reading you that, that you're angry about it in a way that as if we are really causing it in a way. Does that make sense or can you, can you react to that a little bit? Yeah. Um, you know, I think part of it is – and I, we might have even talked about this the, the first time I was on your show. The way that I try and do journalism comes from how I started to do journalism. You know, I didn't – go work for the New York Times, the Washington Post, or NBC News. You know, in 2005, I like felt like there were these grave attacks on civil liberties that very few people were talking about. And the climate in, in the mainstream media was still very much uh, where it was difficult to raise serious criticisms about George Bush and Dick Cheney. There was this kind of still ongoing sense of patriotism. And so I started, you know, I just created a blog and started writing based on my perception that there were a lot of things not being talked about that I wanted to shine a light on. And oftentimes I still view that as my role. So, you know, I think we've talked before, I've certainly talked to other shows before, like people say, well, why don't you criticize Trump more? And my argument has always been, well, there's, you know, 90% of the media every day waking you wake up and you can read criticisms of Trump. No one needs me to go and echo that. I'm trying to show things that are being overlooked, not things that are being echoed by everybody. I don't think that does much good. I don't think it's a good use of my journalistic platform. So people say, well, why don't you criticize Russia more? Why don't you talk about Putin's attacks on civil liberties? Or why don't you condemn with greater vehemence his assault on Ukraine? I look around and I see everybody, basically everybody doing that. I mean, it's a complete consensus, very little dissent. And so I try and use my platform to raise questions that I think are being just run roughshod over, you know, that people don't want to ask. So I don't, you know, if your suggestion is that I harbor a view that the United States had this like grand master plan, this kind of dastardly sinister conspiratorial plan to lure Russia into an invasion of Ukraine, I don't, you know, I maybe I used to think of the government that way 10 or 15 years ago when I kind of really started delving into the work of the CIA and the Pentagon and during the war on terror, but I've come to see that the U S government is nowhere near that competent, yeah. you know? So I don't, I don't think that that's what it is. I do though think that a lot of these actions were designed to be provocative toward Russia and it was more just an indifference about what the result would be. And I think now that Russia is in Ukraine, I absolutely think that the, that American military planners, see an opportunity, which is to prolong the war to arm an insurgency, to trap Russia there, to turn Ukraine into Syria or Afghanistan, which is very much contrary to the claim that we're there to help Ukrainians. Obviously, a prolonged insurgency war like in Ukraine, like in Afghanistan or Syria would have the opposite effect. And I, you know, the thing that I guess concerns me the most is, you know, we were warned about this war for weeks, if not months before it was coming. The Russians signaled that they were intent on doing something serious. They had amassed, you know, 200,000 troops on the Ukrainian border. I think there were things the U.S. could have done that the U.S. could have done, the U.S. government could have done and should have done to try and negotiate uh, a way of averting this war, including just saying, we're not going to put Ukraine in NATO, have the Ukrainians say, 
you know, we're going to be neutral. We're not going to be on one side or the other, given how sensitive this part of the border is. And it seemed like there was no interest in doing that. And even at the beginning of the war, when Zelensky wanted to negotiate, seeing what was going to happen to his country, there were lots of reports saying that the Americans were against it. They were telling him they thought it was futile, that it would reward aggression, that he shouldn't do it. So I do think there's a kind of a sense that whether it was by design or just kind of now seized on opportunistically, I think American military planners and NATO leaders are quite happy to see the situation Russia finds itself in. So Demir alluded to this already that – so you're saying that one possibility was that Biden could have put pressure on the Ukrainians to declare some kind of neutrality. But the issue here is that Ukraine is a democratic country and Ukrainians themselves have preferences. And it seems that um, they've had a preference for some time to lean towards the West. Who are we to go in and tell them that they have to take a national position on something that is dear to them, that is contrary to their own desires and interests? And I think that, um, you know, ultimately we're talking about sovereign nations that should be able to choose. They're not just part of Russia's sphere of influence. And that just because Russia has cared historically about Ukraine, that means that it has veto power over what the Ukrainian government does. That would be, in a sense, imperialist. That, in a sense, would be anti-democratic. It would be negating the will of the Ukrainian people. So what's wrong if a majority of Ukrainians say, no, we want to lean towards the West. We don't want to be officially neutral. This is our will. Yeah, I mean, first of all, there were things the U.S. could have done independent of Ukraine. I mean, Ukraine may want to be in a military alliance where 30 big, powerful Western countries protect it in the event that it would be attacked. I don't blame them for that. I mean, I can you know assure you that here in Latin America where I live, given the history of most of these countries having been attacked and assaulted in various ways in terms of their sovereignty over the years by the United States, including recently with Honduras and Bolivia and lots of other countries, every one of these countries would love if China or, or Russia came and said, hey, we're, we're, we're willing to give you a guarantee that if the United States in any way starts attacking you or interfering in your politics, we'll consider it an attack on ourselves. Who wouldn't want that? That's fantastic. But that doesn't mean that the U.S. and NATO have to give that to everybody who asks. There's a lot of calculations and self-interest involved, which is why Ukraine is not yet in NATO. So even if, let's just set aside for the moment, let's assume that you, the position of the Ukrainians was, we want to be in NATO, we want to lean toward the EU, we want to be you know, in your sphere of influence and not theirs, that still leaves the United States and NATO with a lot of room to negotiate and say, we're not going to put them in, in, in NATO because we know how provocative that is. We're not willing to go to fight a war with Russia over Ukraine, which I think is the position of most Western powers. And there was no attempt to formalize that as a way of averting this war. The other thing is, I mean, look, yes, in the ideal world, in this nice, perfect world where everybody's sovereignty and democracy is respected and everybody gets to decide for themselves what kind of country they want to be. Theoretically, it's true that the Ukrainians should have the right to say whatever they want for themselves and the U.S. shouldn't pressure them. The reality, as you all know, is completely the opposite. We pressure countries all the time using our power and our leverage to do what it is that we want, whether it's contrary to or in, in line with what the citizens of those of that country of those countries want, including in Ukraine. I mean, you can go listen to, you know, the audio of Victoria Nuland and the ambassador to Ukraine, where they basically all but chose the Ukrainian president for the Ukrainians. And, you know, we were involved so much in the governance of Ukraine over the course of many years that, you know, there's a reason why Joe, why Burisma paid Joe Biden's son $50,000 a month and not the son of some Ukrainian official because it was a recognition of where the power was inside Ukraine, who could actually do the favors for Burisma, who wielded the, the real power in there. And so, you know, all and, and like and, and then, the you know, the other point is. The idea that the United States is governed by a view that it wants to respect the sovereignty and democratic values of other countries, while at the same time, our closest allies in the world are some of the world's worst despots. You know, we arm and prop up and support the Egyptians and the Saudis and the Emiratis and the Qataris and throughout history have 
done the same. I don't think it's very credible to say that the goal of the United States is to ensure that the sovereignty and democratic will of a small country is protected because so many of our actions run counter to that claim. But that's I'm saying the pretext, that pretext, but that's not yeah. the reality. But I'm saying that it, it should be a goal. We should aspire to be better on that front. As you know, Glenn, like I, I'm a pretty outspoken critic of our support for repressive regimes in the UAE, Saudi Arabia, and so forth. And But it's precisely because of that position of mine that makes me sensitive to this idea that the U.S. goes in and um, coerces or pressures democratically elected governments. I mean, just because we've been really bad in the Middle East on this doesn't mean we can't be better in Ukraine. But I do want to just touch on, I think, a bigger. But wait, but before you go, before oh, yeah. you go on, just let me just oh. let me just add one quick point about that, which is like this is a, this is a part of the narrative that has been bothering me, which is, you know, if the if Ukraine was just sort of this like independent democratic country that we kind of just observed from a distance. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, Russia invaded and started bombing it and making all sorts of demands of it. And our, we could credibly say, hey, there's this democracy over there that deserves to be respected. It shouldn't have big powers interfering and dominating its will that way. But the reality, again, is at least since 2014, with whatever you want to call it, a revolution or coup, whatever you want to label it, there's no doubt that the United States played an important role, which doesn't mean that Ukrainians didn't also, but the United States was heavily involved in that change of government in 2014 and with so many other micromanaging of their their governance since then that it's just not the case that Ukraine is this democratic, sovereign, independent country that isn't controlled by or has interference of other great powers. The United States has been operating in there in all sorts of ways, you know, and the Russians know that and perceive that. And I think that especially with Russiagate over the last five years where hostility between the United States and Russia was deliberately intensified, where it almost became inherently suspect, if not criminal, for an American official to even talk to a Russian official or a diplomat, this kind of, you know, hostility emerged between these two nuclear armed powers that a lot of us were concerned about with Russiagate and were warning about that I think caused a lot of what the United States was doing in Ukraine to be perceived as even more threatening than it otherwise would have been to Russia absent that scandal that 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 constantly hyped up hostility toward toward Moscow. I mean, p point taken, but I think there's also an alternative reading of the last 15 years of history. And I touched on this in my Atlantic piece that Russians saw weakness. There were times when we were deferential towards Russia in key conflicts. So first in 2008 with Georgia's attack, sorry, Russia's attack on, on Georgia. And that was George W. Bush was president. We didn't really, we didn't respond um, as I think many Georgians may have liked. Um, and so then a few years pass and then we have Crimea in 2014 and the Syrian intervention where Russia came in and backed Assad's regime in a rather brutal way. And again, there were there were opportunities for the U.S. to push back. We don't have to go into whether or not we, we should have done more on Syria and all of that. But just to say that at different points, successive American presidents decided not to escalate with Russia. They decided not to be overly confrontational. So when I hear this, the discourse of the U.S. being provocative, towards Russia, maybe parts of it are true, but there's also other parts which suggest that we've been trying to avoid an overt confrontation for quite some time. And perhaps we've been maybe too, too I don't wanna say nice to the Russians, but we've, we've invited them to view us as weak. And not to kind of use a cliche here, but I think it is fair to say that Putin senses weakness, he senses fecklessness, and his interpretation was that the U.S. was on decline, we didn't have our shit together, and that he could get away with a lot of things he wanted to do. Yeah, I think I think you're right about that, although I wouldn't necessarily define it as fecklessness. I've pointed this before, you know, in 2016, Obama, this was after Crimea, after Georgia, obviously, was, you know, he was in his last year of his presidency, and he gave this long, really in-depth interview to Jeffrey Goldberg about what are the underpinnings of his foreign policy. 
And Jeffrey Goldberg was voicing what a, what a lot of people in both parties in Washington felt, this frustration toward Obama for not having confronted Russia more in Syria, but including in Ukraine, where people wanted Obama to authorize way more, greater amounts of lethal arms to be sent to the Ukrainians, and Obama wasn't willing to do so, and Jeffrey Goldberg was pressing him on this, and Obama said, you know, I guess you can look at this as fecklessness, or you can look at this as just like realism. He said, look, the reality is Ukraine is and always has been and always will be a vital interest to Russia, and it has never been and never will be a vital interest to the United States. We will never go to war with Russia over Ukraine, and therefore there's just not anything that we can really do to prevent Russia, if they perceive a threat in Ukraine, from, from acting. Just like Russia wouldn't, for example, if we perceived a threat in you know, Venezuela or Peru or a Caribbean nation like Grenada, wouldn't go to war with the United States in what everyone considers to be our region of influence. Um, and I don't know, I, I, I guess the question I have is, do you think Obama was wrong about that? Do you think we should consider Ukraine to be in our sphere of of in our a vital interest to American security, such that we're willing to fight a war with Russia over it. Can I can I jump in here because I I know that Shadi hated that interview a lot or hated Obama <laughs> in that interview more than more than perhaps Jeffrey Goldberg. So uh, I'll let Shadi get into that, but I, I just wanted to jump in on on two points and maybe then I think this could maybe get us talking about this in terms that I, I want to talk to Shadi about as well. I mean, it's something we go back and forth a lot on. Um, you know, first point, uh, you know, I, I don't want to lose this, uh, but, you know, to your point that what the United States could have done in the run-up to the war about, uh, you know, declaring uh, that um, Ukraine is, you know, not welcome in NATO, basically shutting the, uh, officially shutting the open-door policy of NATO. Um, I, the, the the main, I think, problem with that, we had uh, Samuel Cherup uh, from Rand on, a consummate realist, a real sort of Russia scholar who really, you know, I think shares a lot of, you know, both yours and mine, even though Sam and I actually are, are on different pages or were on different pages in the run-up to this. Um, the, 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 the main problem was, and actually continues to be, you saw it in Biden's speech where he, he doubled down now on, on NATO's existing borders. The problem with these half promises to Ukraine is that first they set up expectations, I think, but it's also the logic of NATO is that that the NATO alliance itself feels incredibly vulnerable or the the frontline states feel very vulnerable. So, um, you know, stepping down uh, in front of that kind of buildup of of, um, of of forces uh, I think, you know, would have had actual impacts on all of NATO. And I'd argue to you and I've argued to, to Sam uh, that, that, in fact, you know, while we focus on, uh, you know, Russian sort of imperial ambitions, um, you know, uh, the arguments you put forth that it's a, a question of threat, uh, the other, I think, pretty clear ambition of Putin's was, in fact, to – he perceived that NATO itself was fragile and he wanted to, I think, show – especially frontline states, that it was not reliable. So, I mean, again, from talking to government officials and just sort of the background of it, I'm fairly sure that that, that was a large part of the calculus why, you know, we were happy and Biden went out of his way to, you know, meet and constantly talk to the Russians, but they, they were not willing to take that step. The interesting question is, and you're seeing it now, you know, with the Israelis going in to actually mediate between the Ukrainians and, and, uh, and, and the Russians, uh, it's, you know, the, the deal is, is more or less the same uh, that Putin is offering. He is backed off. It looks like Zelensky may be able to stay in power as long as he basically neutralizes the country, uh, renounces its claims to NATO. What my argument to Sam was always, you know, ultimately, Putin doesn't trust us at all anymore. He thinks we're weak in fact, or that the whole alliance is overstretched and weak. Um, I think he's probably changed his, his calculus since the invasion. But, uh, at that point, what he really needed was the Ukrainians to renounce it themselves. And that gets back to that question of, of, of um, you know, uh, of agency that Shadi was pushing you on. And I think is, is, is you know, an important question we'll be thinking about after in the aftermath of this, wh however it ends up. You know, I mean, Zelensky himself, I think, didn't believe it could happen. Or if it did, it wouldn't be quite as, you know, as big, even though everyone was giving him the intel that it was they were going to drive for Kiev. It was going to be a decapitation strike. He didn't believe it. 
I personally didn't think Putin would actually go for the whole thing like this. It's that's one thing I didn't count on. Um, but it's still I think it was it really was on the Ukrainians themselves to make that choice. It was the only credible one, quite frankly, that that they could have made. Now, one can say that Zelensky himself, you know, uh, would have been assassinated by, uh, you know, uh, Ukrainian hardliners on this if he had done that, you know, that's that's plausible. So there were all sorts of pressures, which again leads to that question of, you know, I think it's a really tragic situation we got ourselves into rather than, you know, a nefarious one. Even if I grant you most of the the stuff that's saying all the mistakes we made leading up to it. But this gets to the other part now that that you know, I I in my notes here is listening to you talk. You know, you bring up Burisma, you, you talk about uh uh the corruption that's endemic there, the very imperfect nature of, of, of Ukrainian democracy. And, you know, I, I would be the last person to deny that the United States was not involved there. The part where the way you characterize it, though, uh, is, is where I get uncomfortable because I, I, I generally am uncomfortable with the whole democracy promotion project, the whole overarching uh, bureaucracy that we have surrounding it. But at the same time, I recognize it's, it's sort of – it's also part and parcel of what America is. I think Shadi's much more comfortable with it. But really, you know, the, the more benign – and again, in my frame, you know, walking into a buzzsaw in slow motion, this is just what we do. And yeah, sure, Toria Newland was running around, running her mouth. She, she likes running her mouth. She's loud. Um, and yes, of course, we were working with civil society and helping uh, political powers get in. And of course, it was in our interest to promote democracy. Um, and, and the democracy that we stood up was absolutely imperfect. Ukraine is far from a, uh, you know, uh, like uh, something, you know, it's far from, ha- before the war, it had a lot of problems, obviously. Um, the thing about, I think the way I would characterize America is, is it, it blunders into this kind of empire, but it's a different kind of empire, right? I mean, it's an empire based on these kinds of, you know, again, a, a bureaucratic apparatus that is... Uh, all about uh, uh, spreading democracy uh, and instilling it and then like building it. Um, and uh, I mean, I guess the question, you know, my, you know, to you, Glenn, also to Shadi is, I mean, is that something we should think about going forward? Like, is that, is that sort of uh, bureaucracy that, that creates these situations uh, a liability? I'm not sure we can do anything about it. I think it's just sort of so built into sort of the American psyche uh, that, you know, this is just how we do things. And then we end up with messes at the limit here. But again, you know, I, I wanted to sort of push back on this idea that, that you know, that, that Ukraine was, a, was an American puppet state. Um, obviously, you know, there was a, there's a desire for, for economic reasons. You know, we represent prosperity in a lot of ways. The European Union represents prosperity as well. They blunder into all sorts of stuff with their idealism about these things. Also, in 2014, they did as well because... Let's not forget, that wasn't about NATO. That was about signing an association agreement with the European Union. Um, and, and, you know, it's this sort of idea that history is moving this way and we nudge it forward. And sure, perceptions are different on the other side. Sure, it's reckless. But do you know what I mean? It's I, where I really want to push back on is this idea that wh- whereas perceptions, for whatever reason, and I'm happy to talk about like Russian perceptions and sort of the, the scheme of Putin's rise and fall and, and how we get there, it's just a lot less nefarious, I feel like, than you just laid it out, Glenn, in, in some of your, uh, in, in your, in your exposition, your last questions. Yeah, I mean, look, there's a lot to, to dig into there, then, and there's several points I want to address. But before I do, just to clarify your, your position, your argument, um, this, this word blunders always bothers me because it always is seemingly designed to suggest that when the United States goes places and blows things up and kills civilians and invades countries and, you know, bombs all kinds of structures, that it's doing it almost like, you know, it's kind of like hapless, well-intentioned giant that just sort of steps on its own toes sometimes and kind of falls down, but there's no, you know, morally sanctionable uh, motive behind it. It's just kind of like a happy-go-lucky error that we make, like, oh, we just blundered. Um, and this kind of language of moral evil is, is reserved for the countries that are adverse to us. And I guess the question I have for you is, do you, when you look at what the Russians are doing in Ukraine, do you think there are things that they're doing that are different in kind or worse in kind than what the United States did in, say, Iraq? 
look, uh, I mean, this is this is where I sort of I feel like I'm insulated from this because I really avoid moral language in, in a lot of this stuff. Um, and this is where Shadi and I really, you know, especially over this one, I think we've been arguing back and forth. And that's why I think the two of you arguing on the 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 moral part is more interesting. I I, I can give you a a many layered uh, analysis of how the Russians have found themselves into this. They blundered into it themselves. You know, it's not yeah. like this is any kind of brilliant move by Putin's. And clearly it looks like it's quite a catastrophic, potentially quite a ca- catastrophic move for Putin at this point. Um, and, you know, uh, I think there's plenty to talk about, of, you know, how we have reacted to this right now, whether we're boxing ourselves into a, a really nasty situation. I think there's plenty to, to unpack there. But, but uh, you know, from my perspective, um, it's, it's, I, I, I fall back on this question of trying to do analysis once removed on this and, and, and really having more of like an appreciation of the sort of the, the tragic nature, the tragic recurring nature of all of this, um, rather than saying that, that uh, as, as I, I feel sometimes you, you, you shade into, is this idea that, that, that you know, uh, that even the United States, you know, has a kind of uh, well, a plan around it. And again, you know, we can, we can unpack individual things, but that's where I fall back on that. Um, I, 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 I think I can very comfortably say that what the Russians are doing in Ukraine uh, is completely barbarous, and we have waged some very barbarous wars, and I don't feel any compunction about saying that. And I don't think, in fact, that, is, uh, that traps me in, in, in this kind of equivalence, largely because um, at the limits, you know, uh, uh, I think there are all these other qualifying things like, like what I was saying, that, that basically uh, how, how the United States blunders into a lot of this stuff. And, you know, I'll leave the Middle East to, to you and Shadi. I, I do a lot on Russia and, and on Ukraine and, you know, Europe. Um, to, me, to me, a lot of the European stuff, the sort of post-Cold War stuff, is more based on a kind of idealism run grossly amok that doesn't, that doesn't appreciate the role of, of potential violence and conflict, that really believes in a kind of better world that's possible out there, and is quite frankly not worried enough about it, and quite frankly not cynical enough about how the world works. That's where I come from this, and that's how I criticize the United States, that, that, that we're idiots in a lot of ways on this, largely because we believe in things that, 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 uh, that we get carried away with. So that's my criticism. So I, I would, I disagree with Demir there. <laughs> so I'll, I'll just offer up a different perspective on equivalency. Um, and I, I know, Glenn, that you'll disagree quite strongly with what I'm about to say, but I think it'll be interesting. Um, so, you know, I, the Iraq War, I think that we all agree here, was a disaster, and it was one of the worst, you know, one of the worst moments in American foreign policy. Um, you know, I, my my early days being political post nine eleven were in you know at participating in the anti war movement and seeing this as an incredibly stupid and dangerous thing. It happened, and. Um, so I think, but there is a key difference in the sense that, first of all, um, you, Russia is an authoritarian regime, the U.S. is not, and then the target, Saddam, authoritarian, Ukraine, somewhat democratic. There are important differences. That doesn't, I think, excuse anything the U.S. does. I want to I want to be clear on that, but to kind of put them side by side and say, one equals one, and they're both equally bad, I think misses some really important nuances. I mean, we, um, I don't think American policymakers, as bad as they are and have been in various instances, wake up in the morning and think, oh, we want to eliminate the Iraqi people. We don't want, like, there isn't, intent matters, um, outcomes can be similar in terms of lives lost, and one might argue that those on the receiving end of American bombs don't care about intent. I I care about intent for a variety of reasons. One of them, you know, is that um, morality doesn't really exist without intentions. We have to know why people do what they do and what motivates them, and that does matter. Um, so I just don't see anything comparable where we go we we invade a country and try to conquer it 
and then basically try to perhaps occupy it indefinitely. Now, there was an occupation in Iraq, of course, but we did then pass on control to a democratically elected government that became pretty anti-American in some ways, pro-Iran in other ways. So clearly, the idea that Iraq was a solid member of an American empire and they were just a puppet state that we used to do whatever we wanted to do, I just don't think that holds. Um, and um, and then also, uh, you know, Saddam, you know, so not to go into the whole Saddam thing, but the fact that Saddam was a brutal dictator is different than what Ukraine is, you know, as I mentioned earlier. Anyway, those are just maybe a couple points I would raise. Um, I think you'll disagree, but I'm curious how you would respond to that. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, look, motives are very difficult to discern. They're things you could never prove with certainty. We have a hard enough time at least in my experience, discerning our own motives when we do certain things. Generally, our motives are very mixed. We often deceive ourselves about what our real motives are. We make them more noble. Trying to discern what other people's motives are, even more difficult, and then trying to characterize the motives of you know an entire government or an institution, even more difficult still. What I think is that First of all, we all are tribal beings, no matter how rational we try and be, right? This this tribalism is embedded with us over millennia. It's just naturally how we see the world. And so I think we all have a tendency to believe that our side, that our tribe is better. We're just taught that. We're taught to see the world through the prism of our side. And so I think it's just natural to assume that when we see our government using the same weapons, cluster bombs and thermobaric thermo uh, bombs and you know killings of civilians and calling our attack on Iraq shock and awe you know designed to just like unleash so much firepower that it terrorizes not just the military but the entire country into submission so there wouldn't be an insurgency I think it's very easy to get ourselves to believe that even though it looks like what the Russians are doing we have the good motives and their motives are somehow more malicious. I have no doubt that the Russians believe the opposite about what their government is doing, at least, you know, a lot of them. Obviously, there's dissent in, on both sides. They believe what's really going on in Ukraine is they're genuinely right-wing extremists, Nazis, people who are brutalizing the Russian-speaking minorities in eastern Ukraine. They believe that, you know, the U.S. is there building chemical labs and threatening them and that it's actually just a war of self-defense in a way that nobody could say the war in Iraq was. No one could say that Iraq was ever threatening the United States. So I think you could make that case the, the other way. There's a huge difference, a huge difference between attacking a country right on your border where the world's greatest superpower is involved in all kinds of ways versus packing up an entire army and going all the way across the world and invading and attacking a country that no one could credibly suggest was actually threatening to you. I mean, you could make that opposite case that if anything, there's a greater self-defense argument for what Russia is doing in Ukraine than what the U.S. did in Iraq or Yemen with the Saudis or Libya with um, NATO or what happened in Afghanistan. So I think ultimately you just have to look at the actions. And this is part of what's bothering me is, you know, if you look at all the reasons we're supposed to be so aghast at what the Russians are doing, they use cluster bombs, they use these radiation bombs today, these kind of bombs that vaporize people, they're killing civilians. These are all things the United States has done. And that's not what aboutism or it's not a way of, of justifying what Russia has done. It's a way of saying the discourse to the extent that it convinces Americans to believe that what Russia is doing is so uniquely and unprecedentedly evil that we should be enraged like no other war should enrage us, I think is a form of dangerous propaganda because it lets us believe that we are superior to what the Russians are doing. And I think it's a very hard case to make that at least in many of those cases, we have been. And then the other issue, you know, I, I alluded to this before, is yes, it's true that in the case of Iraq, we went to war against a government that was savage and brutal in, in Saddam Hussein. But I do not believe, and, and you know, again, I mean, motives are difficult, but one of the ways you can know somebody's motives is you can, 
if you want to make an assertion about what motivates somebody in a particular case, you look at their other actions and see whether it's consistent with that motivation. I mean, the United States has supported some of the most wretched, murderous despots, you know, ever to plague the 20th century and into the 21st century. Uh, just General Suharto alone in Indonesia that was one of the United States' closest allies for decades that the United States helped install and build up and throughout Latin America and obviously in the Middle East. If you look at who the United States supports and what the United States is willing not just to tolerate but to root for and build up and empower, and it's incredibly difficult to make the argument that when we say that we're motivated in our wars by a desire to spread freedom and democracy, that's actually our real motive. I don't think our actions permit any conclusion other than we don't care if a country is democratic or autocratic as long as they're serving our interests. Um, but you and I about- can care, though. I mean, so putting aside the U.S. government, when we make our own moral calculus, you and I, that should matter to us. I don't think that it's morally justifiable for the United States to go and invade and destroy a country of 26 million people or you know, 70 million people in the case of Iran if we were to do that because the government is autocratic. I don't think that makes it any more justifiable. I don't look at I don't see that as a just cause for war. And I don't think the UN charter or international law or the principles of Nuremberg do either. Those are aggressive wars which don't become any better because the government that happens to be one that we want to overthrow is less democratic than others. It's not a reason to to go to war at all. And I don't think it makes it the um, more justifiable morally. I also, you know, just on the question of Ukrainian agency and all of that, you know, in war, I think we can all agree it's almost impossible to know what has really happened, especially when we're three weeks in. It takes months, if not years, to figure it out fully. So, it you know, if it's true that we wanted the Ukrainians to agree to neutralize themselves and to vow that they would not be in NATO, they would not be in the EU, they would be a neutralized country as a way of averting war, and the Ukrainians were adamant that they wouldn't want that, that they weren't willing to do that, they'd rather risk war with Russia than give those concessions. You know, that's one that's one world where you can talk about. I'm not convinced that was true. Like I said, there are story, there are report, there is reporting from, you know, major Western outlets that Zelensky was eager to sit down and make concessions with the Russians early on. And the United States was adamant that he not do so. And of course, if you're Zelensky, you're going to ne- not necessarily mindlessly obey, but certainly take into account what the country most important to your self-defense is urging you to do. I mean, we, of course, have a lot of influence over Zelensky that we've been using forever. And so I don't know that that's what happened. It could very well be the case that they were actually willing to do that. And it was our pressure that prevented that agreement from being reached. I don't think we showed much of an interest in forging a diplomatic agreement that could have averted the war. And that's one of the things that's bothering me the most when we talk about U.S. motives. And then just on the question of Ukrainian democracy, you know, um, Demir was saying, look, it's corrupt and it's an imperfect democracy. Of course, that's true. No democracy is perfect. American democracy is full of all kinds of corruption. You know, you can even people and and the people do like scholars and the like call into question how much of a democracy are we really? Like every four years we go and vote. But, you know, in terms of who actually wields power, obviously oligarchical wealth and billionaires and large corporations wield enormous amounts of power in Washington calling into question how democratic our processes that leads to laws and regulatory enforcement. It's not that Ukrainian democracy is imperfect. To me, the issue is, and why I brought up the payments of Burisma to Hunter Biden and Victoria Nuland's, I'm not sure it was just talk. It sounded a lot like they were picking the Ukrainian president and the person they settled on became the Ukrainian president. And obviously, if you're a country that's sending huge amounts of lethal weapons into a country and all kinds of financial aid, of course you have all kinds of influence in that country. It's not that Ukrainian democracy is imperfect. It's the United States is playing a major role in 
pushing and shaping and molding and, and influencing and to some extent dictating, you know, what was happening inside Ukraine to onto the level of like Joe Biden demanding that a particular prosecutor be fired. You know, when you're picking prosecutors for another country based on the money that you're giving them and the weapons you're providing and the influence that you wield, it's very hard to say that that country is this kind of sovereign, independent state free of external influence. And I think the Russians looked over their border and saw how much the United States was involved in Ukraine and and saw it the same way as if we looked over the border and saw the Russians inside Mexico, you know, flooding Mexico with lethal arms to fight us and, you know, forming a military alliance and vowing to put Mexico in it or suggesting that we might and micromanaging Mexico. Of course, Washington would view that as deeply threatening and provocative. We almost had a nuclear war with with Russia because Cuba, the sovereign government of Cuba, invited Russia or requested Russia play, place nuclear weapons on Cuban soil to deter another attack. And we didn't say, oh, look, Cuba's a, a sovereign country. They can invite another sovereign country to put weapons on their soil if they want. We said, we won't tolerate that. That's too close to our border. We have we have the right to, to be very aggressive because that's such a threat to us. And I think, you know, it may not be the same as putting nuclear weapons on the soil rights outside of your border. But, you know, yesterday, Victoria Nuland acknowledged bizarrely in that Senate testimony that Ukraine does have what she called biological research facilities, which are, in her words, dangerous enough to be very worried that they would fall into Russian hands. So when you combine all these different ways that we're in Ukraine, we're operating in Ukraine, NATO is right around it, we're deploying anti-missile systems in Eastern Europe, at first claiming it was to protect Eastern Europe against Iran, when of course it was aimed at Russia as well. I think that there's a lot of reasons to say not Ukrainian democracy is imperfect, but it, in some sense, it's kind of illusory. Shadi, do you want to go or, or do you want me to, to go my amoral way? Do you want more moral <laughs> arguments here? Okay, well, there's just, well, this, I don't know if this is moral or not. So we can find out, then you can jump in, Demir. That's it for part one, dear listeners. There's a lot more in the bonus, where we turn our attention to what's next in the war and the implications for the future. If you're not a paying member, head on over to wisdomofcrowds.live slash subscribe and sign up. See you in the bonus.